When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. We were there to measure uh, energy expenditures, which are really fundamental to any organism's you know, biology. Uh, we were there to measure energy expenditures with the Hadza hunter-gatherer population in northern Tanzania to get the, the first measurements of energy expenditure for the hunter-gatherer population. And we were sure that, you know, you can imagine it's very physically demanding to be a hunter-gatherer. We thought they would have very high energy expenditures every day. Um, and in, in fact, what we saw was that when we compared their the calories they burn every day to the calories that men and women in the U.S. and other Western countries burn every day, it's the same. That's anthropologist Herman Ponser. His new book is Burn. How new research blows the lid off how we really burn calories, lose weight, and stay healthy. His striking discovery that Hazda hunter-gatherers apparently use their calories differently than most of us do led him to radically rethink why exercise is good for us. And it turns out that it's much more than just losing weight. This is going to be great talking with you because I find you to be such a wonderful communicator, terrific writer. I love the way you opened the book, Waking Up in a Tent in Tanzania. Yeah. First of all, happy that you can hear the lions grumbling not many feet away and then realizing that they're liable to eat you any bit. <laughs> and yeah. then deciding, no, nah, they probably won't. I'll go back to sleep. That, that, that's a remarkable story. Yeah. Why were you there? What were you doing there? Also, you know, I'm an anthropologist by training, and I'm interested in how evolution shaped our bodies and, you know, what that means for us today. And if you want to understand anything about human evolution, you know, one thing you need to, to take into account is we're hunter-gatherers. You know, that, that's what hunter—the the human strategy is hunting and gathering. And we've been hunting and gathering for two and a half million years uh, since before we were Homo sapiens. And so if you want to understand about anything about the body, the, the sort of relevant ecological context— is hunting and gathering. So we were there to measure uh, energy expenditures, which are really fundamental to any organism's you know, biology. Uh, we were there to measure energy expenditures with the Hadza hunter-gatherer population in northern Tanzania to get the, the first measurements of energy expenditure with a hunter-gatherer population. Nobody had ever done that before. And they were very cooperative with you, weren't they? Yeah. I mean, you know, you can't sort of parachute into these populations. You know, it's, it's a the reason we were so successful there 
is that I was able to, to collaborate with Brian Wood, who's been working the, uh, with the Hadza for two decades. He's probably spent more nights in a Hadza camp than he has in his own house that, you know, in the last two, two decades. Um, and he, you know, his advisor before him worked with the Hadza population for a long time. And so there are some really long kind of even multi-generational friendships that are very real there. Uh, and so you're able to kind of go there on it. It's a, it's, it's a partnership and a friendship that, that allows all that work to happen because you couldn't just sort of show up. So nobody ever measured the energy expenditures of hunter-gatherers before. And then you came up with this surprising finding. Yeah. So um, people had estimated it but never really measured it. And we were sure that, you know, you can imagine it's very physically demanding to be a hunter-gatherer. We thought they would have very high energy expenditures every day. Um, and in, in fact, what we saw was that when we compared their the calories they burn every day to the calories that men and women in the U.S. and other Western countries burn every day, it's the same. So they have the same energy expenditures every day as, as you know, as you and I do and, and other Americans do and other industrialized populations do, even though they're much more physically active. That's so strange. So that led to a, a completely different point of view about how what we eat affects us and how exercise affects us. We were encouraged constantly to exercise more to keep our weight down. But the, the Hadza people exercise, in effect, way more than we do. But they're getting they're they're using up the same calories. What does the exercise do for us if it doesn't help us lose weight? That's an important question. The exercise that they're doing, the activity that they are doing, isn't changing how many calories they burn every day as much as it's sort of changing the way that they burn their calories, right? So you, you need to think about um, energy expenditure every day as as something that your body tries to keep within a narrow range, you know, the same way that we try to, our bodies try to keep our body temperature in a narrow range or our, our blood glucose in a, normal, in a narrow range. And the more we exercise, um, the more energy we take away from other functions. So our body's adapting to exercise in ways that, that reduce energy expenditure on other things. So that's, that's the insight there, that, that exercise isn't so important for all the exercise, for energy it adds on to your daily expenditure, it's important for all the energy it takes away from other things. Give me a picture of that so I can get a clearer image. What do you take away from and, and what do you give more to? So, first of all, uh, you know, even a really active person burns more than half their calories every day on, on things that you never see, like, you know, brain function, immune function, digestion, all these things, uh, things that you, you aren't even aware of. And so you can make small adjustments in those activities to make room for the energy that your body is spending on activity. And so, for example, we know that when you are, if you exercise a lot regularly, your body spends less energy on inflammation. Inflammation levels are lower in people who exercise a lot. And your inflammation is just your immune system kind of being overactive. And so that's actually a good reduction. Um, people who exercise all the time, their stress reactivity goes down. There's a really nice study looking at, at uh, college age women who uh, were either assigned to exercise or just have sort of talk therapy. There are women with, who had uh, mild depressive symptoms, actually, and the study was more about the depression, but they measured energy expenditure along the way. And what they found is that when those women were, were jogging every week, not even that much, but when they're jogging every week, their cortisol levels and their epinephrine levels, so their stress reactivity, went down something like 30%, which we, we know as well has a, a, you know, decreases the energy expenditure on that. And so it's that kind of thing where, you know, again, these you know, the, the, the functions your body's doing all the time that you don't even notice get reduced. And a lot of those reductions are, are really healthy for you. 
So the way we metabolize our food throws light on the idea that upping our exercise is good for our health and our well-being, but it's not the way to look for weight reduction if that's what we're aiming toward. And, and if we're nearing obesity levels, it's important for our health and well-being to, to do that, to pay attention to the weight, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of sort of smoke and mirrors in the diet world about calories and do they count and do they matter and do, you know, but all of weight, uh, your weight is just, you know, all everything to do with how many calories you brought in and how many calories you burned off. It really is about calories in and calories out. And um, if it's hard to move the calories out part of the equation, right, because it's hard to boost your metabolism with exercise is what we're seeing with the HODs of work, for example, then it really is all about calories in um, when we want to try to, to, to affect our weight and to manage our weight. So yeah, that's actually right. You got to focus on diet. It's really interesting to think about the apes, the other apes, the ones who don't look exactly like us. Yeah. Uh, how they metabolize compared to us. They're so huge and strong and have an active lifestyle, I assume. And yet, what's the difference in the, the way they burn calories and the way we burn calories? We're also the first lab that, that measured energy expenditures, daily energy expenditures of the apes. Uh, and we did that because we wanted to, to put our own energy expenditures in perspective, right? You can't really know uh, as much as you'd like to know about our own evolution until you put us in, the, you know, in context of our evolutionary family, chimps and bonobos and gorillas and orangutans. Uh, and what we found was that when you measure the total energy they burn every day, all the calories they burn every day, um, it's, it's substantially less than what we burn. So there's been evolutionary sort of acceleration in our metabolic rates. So um, chimpanzees, for example, even at the same body size, same activity level, they're, only bur they're burning 20% fewer calories every day um, than humans are. Their cells are just not working as, as hard or as fast. And their their bodies just can't put that energy through this at the same rate that we can, and that ends up being really important for our own, you know, for, for the evolution of of, of uh, the key traits that make us human, right? Because our big brains are really expensive; they burn a lot of calories every day. Your burn your brain runs a five k a day. It burns about three hundred calories a day, uh, just you know, just in the course of normal life. Um, we're physically more active than the apes are. Uh, we have big babies and we have them more often, right? And as any mother can tell you, that's a, a big energy cost there. And so, you know, we just have these really ex energetically expensive lifestyles that we kind of, you know, sort of take for granted, but are really fundamentally, they're, they're fundamentally what make us, us, these big brains and, and big families and activity, uh, high activity levels. And it's only because we have these um, accelerated metabolisms that we can, we can do that. And then the question then becomes, well, how do we do it, right? What, what's a, how is all that energy available to us, but not available to other apes? You know, why were we able to accelerate our met metabolic rate? And the answer seems to be that um, we share our food and that by you know, the hunting and gathering strategy, right? It's not just hunting and it's not just gathering, it's hunting and gathering. It's the and that makes it so, um, so different and so successful because some part of the group can go and get these high energy um, but high risk sorts of foods, you know, wild game. They can hunt for big animals. 
Um, if they come home empty-handed, that's okay because they're going to share with. They'll be able to share with the people who went and got the plant foods that are maybe a little bit less energy rich, but are there every day and are much more dependable. And so that kind of um, complementary strategy is really successful. And what it does is it makes uh, the average amount of energy available day to day much higher. And not only that, but you know, if you do get a zebra, we can share that zebra with everybody in the camp. And if we're being smart and clever about how we gather plant foods, we can even gather more than, of those than we need and share it with everybody in the camp. And so gathering more than we need and being able to share it is what makes um, humans so sort of an energy, it gives us an energy rich environment that allows us to invest and kind of depend on having more calories available. And that process over you know, a few million years has, has led to this high energy strategy that we're, we're living today with our big brains and our active lifestyles, our big families, and you know, all these things that sort of make human life so different and so unique. It reminds me of Brian Hare's argument that we're, we're so successful because we're so friendly. Sure. Yes. Well, I think that's right. I think once you get going with it, once you start sharing it all, right, now there's incredible selection to be the best sharer, to be doing it, you know, to, to be clever about it. So you're sharing within your group, not just randomly, right? And to be uh, developing, you know, uh, the, the kinds of behavioral tools and, and intellectual capacity to remember who's sharing with whom and who your good sharing partners are. And then that can develop into this, you know, I share with my group and that keeps not just my offspring happy and me happy, but it keeps my group happy. And now we have this sort of group versus group selection kind of happening. Um, and I think that absolutely in, in later in human evolution um, with our own species, for example, I think that's certainly at play. And I, I think that uh, a sharing, hunting and gathering as a sharing strategy, I think that fits really nicely into the sort of survival of the friendliness uh, work that Brian's done. I wonder if there's anything uh, in this regarding the actual experience of being on the hunt that you mentioned before. The hunters, I can picture them going out for a day of hard work and coming back empty-handed at the end of that day, and the women are all eating the berries, and the hunters are saying, well, what about me? I had a hard day's work out there at the office. And if they're going to get berries that day, the next day, they got to give a little meat. Otherwise, they're not going to get berries anymore. That's right. I think you've got to have, um, you know, you can imagine um, the kind of mental accounting. that I think we all are, We again, humans are very good at this, right? You know who your generous friends are and who your stingy friends are. And I think we're all pretty good at keeping track like that. And we, we sort of take it for granted. But there's a whole um, set of behaviors there and set of intellectual abilities that have to develop along with the behavior, the sharing behavior, to make it work. Absolutely. So when you go to a Hadza camp, one of the first things you notice is everybody is saying za to each other, right? And I, it took me a while to figure out what that means. Za means to give. And it's the word you hear all the time in a Hadza camp. And it's because there's no, um, there's no please and thank you that goes along with it, right? Huh. So I've got little kids running around here somewhere. You probably hear them on, on the microphone. And if they ask for something, they're supposed to say please, right? And when they get it, they're supposed to say thank you. And that's just kind of drilled into them. It's like it was into me when I was a kid. Yeah. And uh, but in in Hadza culture, it's just so expected. I mean, it's of course you're going when somebody says give, of course you give, you know? And sort of the please and thank you, those niceties are only there to kind of imply that you might decide not to give, 
right? But if you have to give, if that's a cultural imperative that you have to give, then the yes, the, the, the please and thank you are kind of unnecessary. So za za za, you hear that all the time in a Hadza camp, and um, it's because everybody shares everything. So what about some of the myths you talk about? Myths of foods that help us lose weight. You're constantly seeing clickbait on the yeah. internet. Don't eat these three foods if you want to lose weight and that kind of thing. What What are some of the myths that you can explode for us? Yeah, well, um, there's all these super villains and superheroes in food, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. You know, um, if you're a Hadza man, then you know, then the superhero of food is uh, you know, zebra testicles. That's what you really want to focus on. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> so they have they have their own myths. Yeah, that's right. They have a whole culture around what are called apeme uh, apeme meats or apeme foods, depending on how you translate it. And it's you know certain parts of the animal. The testicles are one of them. There, I think there are a couple others that are you know meant to have real power in them, uh, and they're what keep you healthy and, and vital. Um, and you know that seems silly to us because that's not our culture. Uh, and I think if they looked at how we focus on you know, the, the latest berry or food or whatever that makes you healthy, I think they would have the same, they'd roll their eyes the same way that we roll our eyes about zebra testicles. <laughs> so we, instead of zebra testicles, we have celery. Yeah, that's that right. Celery that's is, right. if you eat that, we're told by some folks, if you eat that, the energy you expend digesting it uh, eliminates the calories. But that's that's not true? No, that's not true. Uh, there There are no negative calorie foods. Um, and there aren't any foods that are inherently, you know, uh, well, there are some foods that are good or bad for you, but it's not because they have a, you know, the, uh, a particular nutrient in them or anything like that. You know, people like to villainize carbohydrates, for example, these days, right? That's a big thing. Don't eat carbs, don't eat sugar. And it's true that there's nothing good in sugar for you, particularly, uh, but it also isn't the sort of super evil villain that will make you fat even you know, if you don't eat extra calories kind of thing, if you, if you don't overconsume it. Um, carbohydrates, fats, proteins for that matter, they all affect your weight the same way, which is that if you eat too many calories and you don't burn them off, then you gain weight. It's really that simple. But every time I hear that we use so many calories using our brains, it sounds like instead of getting on the stationary bike for half an hour, I should read Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, it turns out it doesn't actually matter how hard you think. Uh, your brain. <laughs> oh, now you've destroyed another myth. Come on. Yeah. So there's um, they, they do these wonderful studies where they get people who love to play chess and yeah. they have them play against the computer and they, they titrate the difficulty. Right. So it's just a little bit, you know, a, a little more challenging than the person um, can handle. And so they, the person works very, very hard to try to beat this chess game that they can't beat. And they measure the energy expenditure, you know, before the game and during the game. And the answer is, if you um, are thinking as hard as you can trying to beat this, this chess game, the calories that you burn go up about four calories an hour. So that's about an M&M. You can get that. An M&M. &M. &M. Yeah. So now you've yeah. made it much better for me. Instead of getting on the bicycle <laughs> and instead of reading Shakespeare, I should take an M&M. That's right. There you go. Have an M&M. Or, or, or read Shakespeare, and while you're doing it, you eat one M&M an hour. That's what you now, get. Now, I think we got a whole theory here. You can make a million <laughs> bucks with that. <laughs> when we come back from our break, Herman Ponser tells me why his work with the Hazda shows that exercise burns up calories that otherwise could be spent on things that are doing us damage. 
And I discovered that without knowing it, I've actually been eating 2 million calories a day. Clear and Vivid can be downloaded for free because it's supported by our sponsors and by, as they say, people like you. But there are no people like you. You're you. We want to make sure you know about patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's where, if you love hearing from the extraordinary guests we have on our shows, you can become a patron and get early access to special videos. And at the highest tier, you can join me in our monthly get-together online. I think you'll find out that the listeners to our podcast are often as much fun to hear from as our guests. We're grateful to you all. Thank you. And don't forget to check out patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brands Park American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Herman Ponser. You talk about our living a longer, slower life. Yeah. What contributes to that? Well, so that's interesting. Um, if you look at how our metabolism shapes the sort of the arc of our life, right? Um, humans, you know, we might live 70, 80, 90 years, hopefully 100 years. And, and that's, we can expect that if we live or have a little bit of luck and, and, and stay healthy. Um, an animal like a dog, right? Uh, probably won't get past its teens. And that's because they live a, a faster, accelerated life. And um, so what we've discovered is that a, a, big, a crucial component of that difference in speed of life has to do with uh, metabolism. So primates as a group, so humans, apes, monkeys, lemurs and lorises, our evolutionary family, we are all slow in our metabolic rate compared to other mammals. So humans burn about 2,500 to 3,000 calories a day, something like that. Um, but a mammal our size, any other, you know, uh, um, an ungulate or a carnivore, an antelope our size, um, would burn five or 6,000 calories a day. And not because they're more physically active, just because their cells are just cooking away faster than ours are. Um, and so and, and part of that faster metabolism means their cells are growing faster when they're in development, they're reproducing faster, 
and they're aging faster. Ah, I see. So that faster metabolism sets the whole thing up. And so, you know, uh, again, the, the sort of the arc of human life that we can expect, we're going to grow up for, we're going to be children for 10 or 15 years. We're going to go through adolescence. We're going to be adults for, you know, hopefully we you know, lived it into our 80s, 90s, 100. All of that arc of life, that pace of life seems to be set fundamentally by our metabolic rates. Where do you think this is going? How, how do you think we'll be able to use what you're discovering? This is, in a way, brand new stuff. How can we make use of it? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, um, you know, when we think about all the reasons we prescribe exercise to people to try to get them, you know, get people healthier, uh, in general, it's a good thing. We, we, more exercise is better for you, uh, and it's a good way to stay healthy and keep healthy. But we have to so you think more carefully about what exercise does. We've been thinking about exercise in kind of a simplistic way. Oh, it adds to the calories you burn every day, and so that's the benefit of exercise. I think the more interesting piece of this is, and where my research is pointing is, exercise is, is really healthy for you because of all the ways it changes everything else, right? So if you think about kind of working on a fixed energy budget, right, where you can't just grow it and grow it and grow it, but that there's a certain number of calories you're going to burn every day. And if you burn more of them on, on exercise, you burn less on other stuff. Um, that kind of trade-off and, and, and regulation uh, impact of exercise, I think, is, is an important new way to think about the benefits of exercise. So we can apply it that way. Um, I think in terms of, you know, th then this points us also toward how diet affects health. And, um, you know, if we think about diet as being the main uh, determinant of our weight, then we have to ask, well, well why are some diets leading people to gain? You know, why, why are we overeating and becoming overweight and obese in, a, in modern society? Um, and you know, th there's a, a set of, of directions we can point that way. Uh, not that it's necessarily one macronutrient or another, sugar or fat, but that maybe it's the way that we engineer and process our foods today in ways that our, you know, our Paleolithic brains have never seen before, right? No, mm. no, nobody in the Paleolithic has ever saw a Domino's pizza <laughs> or a Twinkie, <laughs> right? And so I think that's, uh, I think there's lessons to be learned for how we apply this to diet as well and, and exercise too. And yet you mentioned several times how hunter-gatherers go after honey. Oh, yeah. It's, it seems to be a very important part of their diet. It's understandable why they do. Do they get a benefit to their diet by eating honey? Well, I mean, it's the calories, right? They, they get energy out of honey, just like you or I would. Um, but that's just it. You know, we think about um, a, a lot of the, the discussion these days around natural human diets or what a paleo diet would look like have a, you know, a real focus on meat, that somehow humans are adapted to only eat meat. Or that sugar is this evil thing that there's, if you have any sugar in your diet, you're going to be unhealthy. Well, the Hadza are incredibly healthy. They never have any heart disease or diabetes or anything like that. And 10 to 20% of their diet is, is honey. It's just sugar and water, right? Mm -hmm. And so obviously you, you can be a hunter-gatherer and healthy um, with a fair amount of sugar in your diet. Um, we have to think more, think of more sort of um, holistically about how diet and exercise are impacting us. And think about exercise as, as really important for health and diet is more about weight and kind of you know, understanding how those work together as opposed to, you know, the idea that you could 
run enough to earn your donut, you know, that kind of, of thinking. How, how, how much do you have to run to earn a donut? <laughs> you can't. That's the sad thing. But if you wanted to, you know, you burn about 100 calories, uh, 100 kilocalories a mile when you go for a run, about 50 kilocalories a mile when you go for a walk. So um, you, could, you could figure out uh, a good donut um, is about 300 calories, I think. So you have to run about three miles to earn um, a, good, a good-sized donut from Dunkin' Donuts. You inadvertently bring up an interesting point. You you chastise us for talking about calories and not mm. kilocalories. What, what's the difference? Well, it, uh, it's it's a big difference. So a calorie um, is the energy you need to take one milliliter of water up one degree Celsius. By uh-huh. definition, that's what a calorie is. Um, but that's not the calories that are actually on your food labels. Those are kilocalories, right? So if you look at um, the the food label for you know, a box of Cheerios or something like that, um, it's listed in kilocalories. So that, those are thousands of calories, right? Um, so when you eat 100 calories of food, you're actually eating 100,000 calories of food. And Wait why minute, they so did that I, weird I, convention. You, you're confusing me. This is amazing. Wait a minute. Yeah. So if I, if I eat food going by the label on the boxes that gives me 2,000 calories for the day. Yeah. I've really eaten 200,000 calories or something. Uh, Two million calories a day. Two million. (laughs) And why they did that, you know, why they, um, this this is a strange convention that got started in the 1800s and there's just no good reason for it. But basically, uh, this guy, Wilbur Atwater, who's kind of one of the fathers of of nutrition, nutrition science in the U.S. and actually internationally, he decided to go with this convention where rather than say kilocalories, he would just capitalize the C in calories. That was his answer. And so, you know, it, it, technically you should be capitalizing the C in your calories if you mean kilocalories, but nobody even follows that either. So uh-huh. it ends up being this just completely messed up convention. Um, but, you know, here in the States where we measure things with like miles and, and, and pounds and feet and yards and ounces, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised that we can't keep our calories straight. Well, it's good to know that I'm as slim as I am on 2 million calories a day. It's impressive. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're coming to to the end of our talking diet. And we always end our show with seven quick questions that invite seven quick answers. It's roughly about communication. Mm -hmm. Number one, what do you wish you really understood? About anything. Anything. Oh, my gosh. Um, I wish I could understand exactly how the body knows how many calories it's supposed to burn every day, because it seems to pay attention. And how does it know that? And how does it respond? In other words, can we climb into the gears and really see things change and respond to lifestyle in the ways that they seem to be when we measure them on the surface? Do you think there's a way to do that? Are you, are you? aiming toward that in your research? I do. I, that's the sort of the next horizon for us is to ask that set of, of uh, kind of mechanistic questions about how the body responds. Okay. Number two, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Mm. Well, um, I think it's rare that people have their facts wrong. It's more likely that they have their interpretations wrong. So uh, I think you sort of have to explain the way that you see it and hope that 
you can kind of lead them along and, and find some common ground. It's a really hard thing to do. That's why I love to hear different people's reactions to it. Yeah. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? I, I've had some really uh, strange questions from doctors who want to know better. Like, uh, may, are the Hadza burning fewer calories because they don't have to think too hard? <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, if I dropped you off in the middle of the savannah with a knife, do you think you could survive two days? You have to think pretty darn hard to be a Hadza. <laughs> yeah, right. So, you know, um, I, I think uh, yeah, that, that, that might be up there. I love the story that you tell in the book that goes back to the story we talked about in the beginning of our conversation mm -hmm. where you woke up to the growling, the sounds of growling <laughs> from the lions. And then yeah. you saw later some Hadza hunters coming back with animal carcasses draped over their shoulders. And they said, we got them from the lions. We took them. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to be pretty brave to, to scare off a bunch of lions and take their, their animals they were about to eat. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, when I grew up, I, I was taught never to, you know, never touch a dog bull's, a dog's bull when it's eating. Yeah. Like snap at you, you know? And that would be true if it was a chihuahua or a terrier or whatever. And uh, to go and just walk into a lion kill and, and pull that away seems completely crazy to me. Um, but these guys, you know, they're, they're, you got to be pretty tough uh, and pretty savvy to be a hunter-gatherer. It's, it's not an easy way to, to make a living. Okay, back to our questions. Let's say you're at a dinner table, which we may all be soon as we record mm. this, and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you strike up a genuine conversation with that person? Yeah, well, I'm not sure I have any special insight on that. Um, I ask them where they're from. I ask them what they like to do. You know, mm -hmm. what are they excited about? And sometimes that's work, and then we can talk about work, and sometimes that's their family, or sometimes that's their hobbies. And, you know, I think getting to understand what people are excited about and you know, that's going to lead to a good conversation right there. What gives you confidence? I have a lot of unearned confidence. <laughs> <laughs> I was born with it. Um, no, I, I, I think, uh, you know, being prepared. And I think also uh, past success, you know, getting through a tough situation, you think, oh, if I got through that, I can get through this kind of thing. Um, I like to rock climb. And, and, and do mountaineering and that kind of stuff. And I, especially as a younger person, I did. And, you know, you kind of inherently are putting yourself in dangerous situations when you're rock climbing and you're, if you're up in the mountains. And I think after you get out of those kind of hairy situations, and maybe this is why we do this to ourselves as climbers. But when you get out of that, you think, well, you know, if, if I didn't die then, I guess this will be okay, you know? <laughs> and so you just think about, well, what's the worst that can really happen? You just kind of go for it. You know, I think that gives you confidence in other parts of your life. That's great. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? Hmm. Mm. A lot of good books change your life. How about um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance? Oh, great. I read that at a good part of my life and, and thinking about what mean, you know, good versus right. What do we mean by quality? How do we think about, you know, as we go through life, what's a, what is of value and how we decide? I think that was really uh, formative for me in, in that part of my life. That's great. It's been so much fun talking with you. You've introduced me and I'm sure people listening 
to a part of our lives, our, our history and prehistory that we haven't thought about much, but it affects our daily lives at least three times a day when we <laughs> have a meal. In my case, perhaps five times a day. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. Uh, always glad to talk with you. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Herman Ponser is an associate professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke University. His new book is Burn, How New Research Blows the Lid Off How We Really Burn Calories, Lose Weight, and Stay Healthy. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Next in our series of conversations, we follow up our talk with Herman Ponser with another anthropologist who's written a book about diet and exercise. Dan Lieberman's book is Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. And it points out that exercise goes against our basic instincts. You know, rarely do I go to the gym and see anybody enjoying themselves. You know, know, I mean, and for me, the apotheosis of how horrible modern exercises is the treadmill. I mean, you know, think about it. It's a horrible, noisy, nasty, expensive machine that makes you work really hard to get nowhere. You know, to way to, to tolerate a treadmill is to either listen to something, listen to some good music, listen to a podcast, watch something, but nobody can tolerate it on its own, at least not for more than a few minutes. I mean, it's it's a form of torture. It's And actually, that's kind of one of the jokes because the treadmill was actually invented as a form of torture. Dan Lieberman on how to make exercise less of a chore and therefore reap its many benefits. Meanwhile, on our other podcast, Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Maya Fischbach. She's working on new ways to explore the universe. The team she's part of uses giant detectors called LIGO to look for ripples in space-time that are called gravitational waves, like those caused by the collision of two giant black holes. So I've been working on... LIGO since I started my PhD in 2015, which was a very lucky time to be entering this field because I started my PhD the very same month that the first gravitational wave event was detected by LIGO. Even though I didn't know until 
the public announcement in 2016 that LIGO had actually detected gravitational waves. I think I could definitely sense the excitement whenever I talked to people who did gravitational waves that like, it was a very fortunate time. I've kind of grown as a scientist at the same time that the entire field is growing. Maya Fishback, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>